Hey everyone, welcome to AE Live. Uh, tonight our guest is Rich Stoll. And uh, we actually have a really important conversation that I hope is going to make you a safer pilot, whether you're a student pilot or whether you're already a pilot. Um, now, if you're somebody who is nervous about spin training or stalls, just imagine having done over 30,000 spins and over 170 different single engine aircraft. You know, so much so that they actually named you the spin doctor in the International Aeronautics Club. Um, now he was also an award, if that wasn't enough, he's also an award winner in 2006 as the National Flight Instructor of the Year. Um, he's also written a couple of books, one of them being Emergency Maneuver Training. And the second, and the one that we're gonna talk about tonight um, is uh, Stall and Spin Awareness. Not to mention, um, he's been to way too many conferences to mention uh, and speaking uh, countless times to groups to, to really try to help um, pilots become safer. I'm gonna go ahead, I'm gonna put a link down to Rich's website down below, as well as a link to Rich's books. Um, and so with that, let's welcome Rich Stoll. Hey, Rich. Hi, Bob. It's good to be with you this evening. Hey, thanks for coming. Um, you know, I will say I am somebody who is working on his commercial CFI now and, um, spins are something that they no longer teach you in your private pilot curriculum. Um, the FAA does not mandate it anymore. And, um, and so a lot of pilots, they get their pilot's license and they've never had a spin, um, you know, and then they've heard all the horror stories of spins, but they never really truly understand a spin. Um, and I think unfortunately that has caused us to have a lot of accidents that may or may not have been preventable. Um, and so, you know, I read your book and, and I wanna tell you, uh, for those people that are listening, I, I was mentioning this Rich earlier before we got started, you know, something like stall and spins, you know, I, I think, you know, if somebody went to Rich and said, hey, Rich, we want you to write a book. You're kind of the expert on this. Can you write us a book on stall and spin awareness? And Rich could have said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll put together a little 50 page, 100 page, you know, little book. Rich wrote a 500 page book. I think if Rich made this into a movie, it would probably, you know, compete with, uh, you know, Song of the South or, you uh, um, Dancing with Wolves or something. Uh, so, um, so, but you know, so when I, I, when I first got it, I was like, oh my goodness gracious, how is, how is this book 500 pages talking about spins? Rich, you do an awesome job. Um, every page is filled with really good information. I'm no longer, I'm afraid of doing spins, <laughs> but I'm not afraid of the mechanics of a spin anymore because I understand it now. So, um, so a couple questions for you and, and just for the folks that are listening, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, um, right away. Usually I let the, the guests talk right away. Um, we're going to do this a little different than folks are used to. So usually we talk to our guests about their history, how they got started in aviation, and then we kind of get into some, maybe some business stuff at the end of it, you know, but I also know that a lot of folks, they only listen to about half of these podcasts, you know, the other things going on. And so I want to talk about the business stuff first. So we're going to talk about the spins first. So, um, Rich question for you, your first question for you. So what is is the difference for those listening? What's the difference between a stall and a spin? Sure. And lots of good questions, and we can go in a lot of different avenues to answer all of these. But the basic stall, and, and as I use that term right now, I'm going to assume that we're in coordinated flight. So we've got yaw canceled. So in essence, all that's happening is the airflow is separating from the main wing. And most of our airplanes are designed, as long as we're within weight and balance range, to be self-correcting. They, they want to recover. Although if we, if we then go the next step, if we stall the airplane and we allow sufficient yaw to exist at the same time, maybe we've stalled, but we've also applied some rudder, let's say left rudder. Well, the airplane will stall and it may start to roll off to the left side. 
and begin dropping the nose below the horizon and rotating. So, so anytime we have stall and yaw kind of coexisting, then, then we're set up to uh, rotate in a spin. Okay. So, you know, and what makes a spin so deadly? Well, the, the obvious one is, you know, the, the nose is pointing well below the horizon, upwards of 60 degrees or so in a, in a typical case. But where they happen, that, that's, that's the, the real danger. And typically they'll happen at insufficient altitudes in which to recover. So we're talking traffic pattern. Maybe, maybe on a base to final turn where we've overshot the runway centerline and for whatever reason we feel compelled to add the rudder to try to speed up that turn. Nose drops below the horizon, we pull back. So now we have yaw pulling back, approaches the stall, the airplane spins, too low for recovery. On the other end of the pattern, maybe it's an engine failure on climb out and the pilot attempts the turn back to the runway, mismanages the turn. So we could be set up in a, in a scenario like that for, for an inadvertent stall spin departure as well. Yeah, I think a lot of times the CFIs, they do a really good job, um, at least the CFIs I've worked with, have t they've done a really good job talking about the dangers of that overshoot. Um, but you don't usually hear about the folks talking about the takeoff. And yet um, you do see so many spin accident reports from the NTSB that are because of the, the uh, you know inadvertent spin. Well, they're all inadvertent. Well, maybe you do <laughs> inadvertent spins. Uh, but, Not that low. <laughs> but the rest of us aren't trying to do them. Um, and a lot of times people might get into it because they're taking off um, and they've got traffic that's coming in or the um, air traffic controller is, they feel like they're getting rushed to make that turn off the runway um, you know, faster and so they're slow. And then they make that, that turn before they've really kind of developed any speed um, and like you said, there's just no room, um, you know, to, to, to re respond to it. Um, now with that being said, so now refresh our memory. So the FAA, they used to have a requirement for general aviation pilots to do spin training, right? Or no? Yeah. So, so prior to 1949, uh, all student pilots, private pilot applicants were required to have spin training. And, uh, after 1949, they, they took that requirement out except for flight instructor applicants, exactly uh, your case right now. So you, you will have to have a spin endorsement that will say that you are competent to teach uh, stall spin dynamics. Okay. So why, now, one thing I thought that was interesting when I was reading your book, um, and I made some notes with me, that's why people keep seeing me look to the side in my notes here, because I wanna make sure I get all this right. So you had did some investigation um, and you got different groups and you kind of put it in a spreadsheet in the book. And you said that, um, you know, the FAA, um, you know, does it, not only do they not require it, they said they don't recommend it um, to do spin training for, for a private pilot. That being said, everybody else um, that you had spoken to, NTSB, um, you know, even the AOPA, which, you know, didn't say they wanted it recommend, um, uh, mandated, they actually recommended it. So if you're a student pilot, they were saying maybe the FAA doesn't, you know, force you to do it, um, you know, but, but they still think it's a good idea. So really the FAA was by themselves um, as the only group that wasn't recommending it for private pilots. Why, why do you think that is? Well, part of it was, uh, you know, the, the stall spin accident rate was very high back in the, in the 40s. You know, uh, pilots were coming back. It's post-World War II. A lot more general aviation is now booming and uh, just a very high incidence of stall spin accidents. And so uh, there was going to be another evolution of light airplanes. And so one of the one of the thoughts was that, OK, if we if we take out the spin training requirement, 
perhaps at the same time, manufacturers will be building more spin-resistant designs. Now, certainly the, desi the, the airplane designs did improve throughout the 50s and into the 60s, uh, yet, um, yet they weren't spin-proof, right, or, or even spin-resistant from that standpoint. They were certainly better. Uh, they, ha they had uh, uh, more docile characteristics and things like that. You had to abuse them perhaps a little bit more to, uh, to incite the spin. Uh, and so there was kind of this hope between government and, and industry that, that things would evolve probably faster than they, than they really did. And, and if you actually look at, you know, a lot of times we talk about the stall spin accident rates since spin training was rescinded versus beforehand. But if you, you actually, there's one study I cited in the book uh, where, where the author of the study looked at the types of airplanes that were flying pre-1949 and looked at that population of airplanes post-1949. So in essence, he froze the type of airplane. And mm -hmm. so now you could evaluate only the training. And if you look at that subpopulation, it's, they still have basically the same stall spin accident rate before and after uh, removing the spin training. But I do want to say one other thing too. Um, and again, nobody is uh, forced to take spin training unless you're a, a flight instructor applicant. Uh, certainly a lot of people, a lot of industry uh, folks, organizations encourage people to do that. Um, but who is a flight instructor applicant? So that's the real mm -hmm. question, right? So in order to become a, a flight instructor, you have to be a, a commercial pilot. So can you take spin training as a commercial pilot? Sure. Uh, in order to become a commercial pilot, you ha need to have gone through private pilot training. So can you take spin training at that point, thinking that you're going to become a flight instructor down the road? Likewise, even as a student pilot. So anywhere in the continuum, if you're thinking of becoming a flight instructor, you can take the spin training. And the sooner you take it, uh, and we're talking about quality uh, training where you have good ground instruction, good flight instruction and everything else, you'll be just that much more prepared and I will, I'll say comfortable throughout the flight envelope that much longer before you become a flight instructor. You, you know, you, you did a good job of helping me with my segue. <laughs> so um, <laughs> one of the questions I had was, you know, most of the CFIs that are out there, most of them have only had very minor spin training themselves, right? So, um, you know, they're well versed on traffic pattern and you know, all the other things that are, you know, needed for, you know, their private pilot and their instrument, um, you know, trainees. But when it comes to spin training, they may have only done a couple of spins their entire career. Um, you know, so especially if you get somebody who's younger and they're kind of working on their hours for the airlines and, the, you know, that they're relatively new at the FBO and the flight school. So if you're looking for somebody, like you said, quality and no offense to those CFIs, um, no offense at all. So, um, if you're looking for, if you really want to dig in though, right. You know, and not just do the bare minimum, you know, uh, you really want to kind of want to dig into it. What's your recommendation for trying to find, you know, that, that instructor who really, really understands it can really teach it well to you. Sure. So first of all, the FA only requires a, a, an endorsement, a spin endorsement, but there's no real guidance in terms of what goes into that? What do you have to accomplish as part of, of, of that? And so, a, as you stated, as a result, uh, on average, uh, our, our core of flight instructors receive marginal in-depth ground training on spins and spin dynamics. And then the practical training may only consist of one or two spins. Maybe half of those are done to them as opposed to doing them themselves. Maybe up to four spin entry and recoveries. And then they're signed off as competent to teach. And just, just from a 
an intellectual standpoint, if if all it took in aviation was to do two or three or four of anything, we would have soloed after our third landing <laughs> right? Uh, and maybe even been signed off to teach it, right? So things are far more complex than that. And so uh, what I would suggest people do is, you know, invest the time and the effort to find somebody who specializes. So, so if you're a student pilot, you're working with, with a CFI who is a, we'll call them a general practitioner, right? To get you to your private. But then when you want instrument training, I mean, a full instrument program, you have to go to a, a flight instructor who has additional training, who has another eye after their CFI. So you want to do the same thing uh, in spin training or, or even any upset or unusual attitude recovery training. Find somebody who specializes in it because it is, it is a demanding environment and they want to be well-versed in, in all of the knowledge that's available in that particular environment. Uh, in my case, typically it's a three-hour program spread over four flights, 45 minutes a flight. Okay. We'll do ground school, we'll do flying. And once we're done with that process, the student will have done a whole number of stalls, probably more stalls than they've done previous to that, uh, on the order of 20 uh, to 24 different spin entry and recoveries, some of them normal entry and recovery, some of them unusual attitudes where I'll put it in a spin from some attitude and, and they have to recover. Uh, they'll do spirals and spiral recovery so they understand you know, the differences between stall spin and spiral. And we'll also review the critical flight operations that you know, require us to have maximum stall spin awareness in and around the traffic pattern. So we can compress all of that into three hours and it's, it's a pretty intensive program. So, so don't skimp on it because the last thing we want to have happen is for an instructor to be uncomfortable in an airplane because the student can pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And if the instructor is uncomfortable, then the student becomes even more so. And so, so you can imagine almost, you know, we get so far out of calibration and so far out of our real understanding that, that nothing really makes sense anymore in terms of trying to have a discussion about spins and spin training. It almost seems like it's worth it if, um, you know, because folks got to have when they're doing their initial private pilot, they've got to have 40 hours, but we all know that that's usually a pipe dream. Um, you know, it's usually 60, 80 hours, somewhere in that range, um, uh, for folks for their initial flight training. And, you know, if they, if, if they can somehow fit in that, like you're saying at three hours, right? So if they come to you or if they go to somebody else who's really good at it, then, you know, they can fit in those three hours, man, what a really good use of three hours, uh, during their, their initial private pilot. It's good. I just think it's going to make them such a better pilot. Sure. Um, and, and let me, let me just add uh, to that, Bob, uh, as student pilots or even any level of, of pilot training that, we're, that we are receiving, we are required to receive the stall and spin awareness training that's in advisory circular 6167, whatever mm -hmm. the current version is. Unfortunately, a, a lot of instructors themselves don't incorporate that into the training. So, so I'll say that maybe a third of the time, a full hour, maybe a little bit more than that of what I do in, in my spin training program, uh, is actually doing the stuff that they should have received th through, throughout their primary training. So it, it's not like we have to add, I think we can just incorporate it mm -hmm. in, right? We're, we don't have to add time, but I think if we structure the training to pay particular attention to different details, I think we can go a long way toward not only alleviating misunderstanding and apprehension about stalls, but also the same thing regarding spins. And, and as you admitted up front, you're a little nervous about spins. Mm -hmm. 
I would be nervous if a student came to me and was and, and the student was not <laughs> concerned or, <laughs> or apprehensive about it. Perfectly normal, right? And and it's perfectly normal because it's something that we we don't have experience with yet, right? We imagine what it's going to be like, and oftentimes what we imagine is far scarier than what the reality is, mm-hmm. especially if it's good training. Yeah, I imagine that thing is like a dart being thrown at the ground at 3,000 miles an hour. The wings are being ripped off. There's no control whatsoever. That's my imagination of it. Sure. Well, the reality is it, it's a 1G maneuver. You can take your seatbelts off if you want. Right? Really? Uh, it's, it's a 1G maneuver. And obviously, the first, the first couple of spins anybody does, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. Mm-hmm. It, everything happens perceptions are, you know, everything is happening very fast. The the ground is a blur, but then by the third, fourth, fifth spin, things start to slow down because the mental channels open up and you can start to see things on the ground. You can, you can orient yourself. And one of the things I do is I usually spin next to a road. So we have a nice reference on one side or the other. And with a little bit of training, not only can you see the road, but you can tell me if it was a car or a truck on the road. Mm. And with even more training than that, you can tell me what color it was. So it, it's an amazing process to see in, in a microcosm, a very short amount of time, how somebody goes from, holy cow, to, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Uh, yeah, I didn't put enough rudder. In. They, they can self-critique it, and mm. they're accurate about it, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, what's nice to know, and this is true, like when people are first doing doing their first stalls, right? Not even spins, but their first stalls. You know, the assumption is when you start learning how to fly, unless you come from an aviation family or something like that, your assumption is you hear the word stall. And I have to talk to my cadets about this all the time in Civil Air Patrol. You know, when you stall the wing, it doesn't just become a rock. You just don't like fall out of the sky, like just a random, you know, <laughs> a rock just, you know, somebody threw in the air and just dropping down. Like there's physics to it. And usually the whole thing isn't stalled. It's usually only a piece of it. And the airplane reacts in a very specific way, given the inputs you give it. Um, and so I kind of feel like the spin, although it does scare the hell out of me right now, uh, <laughs> I feel like, you know, it, once, like you're saying, once you kind of understand it, you understand what's really happening. Um, you know, then, then all of a sudden you're going through maneuvers that, uh, that are easily explainable. Sure. Sure. Now I will also say, just to give you another plug on your book, um, you know, while, while it doesn't, doesn't make up for actually being in the airplane and having that thing go around on you, but, um, you know, understanding, you know, one, the history of course, um, but the, um, the actual physics of it, you do a really nice job of explaining exactly what's happening. Not just a one type of airplane, but different types of airfoils, um, you know, different types of sweeps on the wings, um, you know, and what to expect based on that. And it really broke it down to the math and to the engineering. And, you know, a lot of pilots, you know, enjoy engineering, right? Um, we tend to be a little bit more geeky than we want to admit, although we try <laughs> to act like we're cool and we wear leather jackets and watch Top Gun movies with, you know, um, <laughs> all these people. And, uh, you know, but in the end, we're all just geeks. And um, so, you know, your book really does give it that. And I, you know, one thing you did say, I, I, it wasn't you, it was another gentleman. I, I, I apologize to that person. I kept, forgot his name. Um, I was watching one of his YouTube videos, but it's back when you had said, you know, eventually you just understand it and it's a 1G maneuver. And the, 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 it was such a dichotomy. So he was on the right seat, right? Cause he's teaching. And then you had the new spin student on the left seat and they went into their first spin and the instructor, I mean, he could have had a cup of coffee. He was talking like nothing's going on. And, and the, the other pilot looked like he was having a heart attack. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
you know that that's the difference in in experience uh, and competence and comfort levels, right? Mm-hmm. And you actually you bring up a very good point in terms of training, right? Flight training. And whenever you are the buyer, the purchaser of flight training, you are in charge. And optimal learning experiences, we we've known what that means, uh, whether it's elite athletes in sports or, or, or any other avenue outside of aviation consists of three different parts. There's the academic part, which, okay, the book satisfies that. And then there's a, a visualization or simulation part where, where you kind of walk through the different things in a, in a safe environment. And then you have the in-airplane part of it. And it's a continuous loop, right? So you, you have the academics, then you have the do or the simulation part of it, then you you work in the airplane and you come back to the academics. And it, if you're missing any three of those parts, and unfortunately in aviation, a lot of training is jump in the airplane and we know the airplane is a, is a lousy classroom, right? Mm-hmm. So we really need to lay the groundwork with the other two uh, elements in that framework and then get in the airplane. It'll be much more efficient and frankly, probably less scary than if we just throw somebody in and say, I'll describe it to you as we go, right? That That's not a, a good learning environment. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing too, I like about the training. Well, first of all, let me ask you this, cause I didn't know you were still teaching. So where are you located out? I'm located in, uh, in Meridian, Idaho. It's just outside of Boise right okay. now. And, um, I, I'm on a, a little bit of a sabbatical from in airplane training. I'm doing all kinds of other different projects, mm-hmm. um, ground schools, webinars, writing. So, uh, I've, I've just taken a, a couple of years sabbatical from in airplane to do some of these other projects. I, I'm, I'm still, working with flight instructors, uh, because from my perspective, if, if I can, if I can help a flight instructor, there's a multiplier effect there. Mm-hmm. That instructor can then reach 10, 20, however many students. So, so that seems to be a little bit more efficient, uh, way of doing it at, at this stage. So if I can't get 20,000 people to your door and get training from you, um, what, um, do you, do you think like aerobatic pilots, you know, ten, trainers um, tend to do a good job because they're so much. They're used to so many more different dynamics of the airplane than, say, a normal pilot. Not necessarily. Okay. So, aerobatic training is a is a different discipline, right? In, in aerobatic training, you're learning to do aerobatic maneuvers perfectly. In stall spin training, upset training, emergency maneuver training, that's sort of an in between gap where we have normal flying, we have the aerobatic flying. But then we get to the stall spin part of it or the emergency training part of it, the upset training part of it, where we're intentionally messing up maneuvers. We're intentionally botching maneuvers and then having to recover. So that's a, that is a different skill set. Now, we might think it's easier to probably take an aerobatic pilot, an aerobatic instructor, and convince them to do things the wrong way and have students recover. That might be a natural transition. And so, so... There is a, a good distinction, and even in the current FAA airplane uh, flying handbook, it talks about upset prevention and recovery training. There is an, a new chapter in there, and it talks about the differences between upset prevention recovery training, which stall spin falls under that, and aerobatic training. So don't naturally assume that that's a natural fit. So so you want to find somebody who who probably does both, but they they understand the the upset prevention side of the training aspect. Now, do you find um, from a training perspective, I know a lot of folks, they'll, they'll train, say, in a 152 or a 172. That, that tends to be a good training. But I've also heard that a 172 maybe isn't the best spin um, training airplane only because it's designed to not spin. That it's actually, Or is it a situation of if you know how to put it in the spin, you can even make a 172 spin pretty easy? 
Yeah, so different airplanes, of course, they're like people, right? They all have their own personalities. Um, and an airplane like a Cessna 172 is a it's a dual category airplane. It has a normal part of the envelope, higher weights further further aft on the center of gravity where intentional spins are not approved. And then you have a, a spins approved utility part of the envelope, which is generally lower weights and more forward centers of gravity. Of course, the more forward the center of gravity, the, the more difficult it is to get the airplane um, at a high enough angle of attack right. to, to generate the spin. And so from that standpoint, even though the spins are approved, it may be difficult to actually get it to happen in that part of the envelope. Uh, there are some tricks and techniques you can do to, to help that. But uh, as NASA found during their spin test program in the 70s and 80s, one of the things that happened in the, in the 172 that they were using as a test uh, platform was that there was enough stretch in the, in the cable system, the elevator cable system, that after a turn or two, the elevator would move just enough that it would transition from a, a spin to a spiral. And oh. here's the problem. You're pointing downhill in a 1G spin, airflow reattaches, you've got the elevator control all the way back, you're accelerating, now you get a spike in G. And th they actually over G'd the airplane before the test pilot could, could respond to that. So just because an airplane might be approved for spin training, A, it might be difficult to actually get meaningful spin training in it just because of the where that's going to happen. But B, it may not necessarily be suitable for spin training. Uh, you know, anytime you're flying an airplane, whatever whatever it is you want to be doing with it, you want consistent results. And if you can't get consistent results, if I'm commanding the airplane to spin and it might suddenly over G into a spiral, that's a bad learning environment, first mm -hmm. of all, right? So Cessna 150s, 152s tend to be better in that regard. Uh, 172s, you can you can do a lot of different stall spin awareness elements in those airplanes. In fact, uh, I've, I train a lot of times with people in their own airplanes up to whatever's approved in them. And then we'll, we'll use something else that's uh, got other capabilities to fill out, you know, the, the spin environment or the roll recovery environment and things like that. So the, um, so you, the pilots you've worked with, and I guess the answer to this is yes, uh, based on what you've already said, but I mean, do you just get used to looking at, I mean, so those of us that aren't into aerobatics, right? So if you're into aerobatics, you're used to looking at the ground, you're used to only seeing the sky, but for those of us that are used to seeing half of the vision with the ground and the other half of the vision with the sky, um, you know, do you get used to like, you know, seeing that nose come into the ground? I mean, is that like, uh, does that get normal after a little while? Yes. Uh, like, like a lot of different things, right? Humans are amazingly adaptable, but part of it is the overall awareness, right? It's not just that you're looking at the ground, but you also have a sense of your energy, mm -hmm. right? And if you know, energy's low, it's going to take in this particular airplane at this particular speed, I've got X number of seconds before I'll need to put some G on the airplane. So it's a lot of different elements that come together that that add to that comfort level, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the first multiple times you're doing something that is new, novel, unusual, or that you're coming into maybe with some preconceived notions already, mm -hmm. uh, then yeah, all of those effects are going to be magnified. But after a while, pointing at the ground is no different from pointing straight up in the air. You know, you you know what the airplane is doing, you know what you are intending to do, right? The, the old saying in the practical test standards, now it's the uh, Air, Airman Certification Standards, was that the, the outcome of a maneuver is never in doubt. Mm -hmm. And so once you get to that level, then really how the airplane is oriented in space is less and less important to you. Mm -hmm. 
Now, going back to the other question. So is there an airplane that, that you, you tend to like the most for doing spin training in? Like if you had a, cho if you had a choice? Yeah, I, I'd say probably my opinion and, and my experience, uh, the best all around trainer is something like a decathlon, right? Okay. It's So the decathlon isn't a quantum leap in performance difference from a 172, mm -hmm. uh, but you can still do all of those other, you can still do all the things and, and kind of modify it so it's directly transferable back to uh, most airplanes that people are flying. Plus it's, it's a relatively easy and fun tailwheel airplane on top of it that you get, you get to do that aspect at the same time. So, so I, I really like the decathlon, although you can take any, any of these, uh, spin training or aerobatic platforms. And if you modify the teaching the right way, you can, you can directly transfer that back to airplanes that you see commonly on the flight lines. Yeah, you know, even um, um, we were talking before about, you know, where spins happen a lot, right? You know, it's usually lower to the ground, um, you know, in the pattern. And I was thinking about this earlier, right? When I was thinking about, you know, okay, Rich is coming on today, you know, what are some good things to talk about? And, you know, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, a, a typical, you know, pattern altitude is a thousand feet, right? And some airports, if they have other, you know, overlying, you know, uh, class class B above them or class C above them, they'll 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 drop down to you know eight hundred feet. Um, but your typical, you know, traffic pattern altitude is is a thousand. So even if you're on, um, you know, base, you're coming down. So you know, you're you're looking at you know six hundred feet or so, give or take. Um, you know, and, and and even with that, I was when I was watching some spin training, you know, the, two things I noticed. So the people that were really good at it. Um, they were able to stop that spin before it got fully established. And so they only were losing a couple of hundred feet, um, you know, you know, three, 400 feet, you know, and even the people that were fully established, um, you know, they, they would lose about a thousand. Um, is that, is that about what you, you're seeing as well? Yeah. So, uh, Roughly, if you were to do a a one turn spin in a number of the the typical spins approved airplanes that you might find available, a one turn spin plus the recovery, generally about a quarter turn in those airplanes, plus the pull out to level flight with about a two and a half to three G pull, yeah, you'll be on the order of six hundred and fifty feet mm -hmm. for that entire process. Now. A lot of times when people think about spin training, they, they just focus on the unfortunate fact that we call it spin training, where it's really a three-part a three part process. You have awareness, prevention, recovery. And it's one thing to know how to recover from a spin, but if the spin is already happening because we had a breakdown or, or a lack of awareness and prevention, it's probably already too late, right? So we have to have all of those things working for us. If, if we know what's what it takes to make an airplane spin, our awareness is I'm not going to be adding the rudder to, on an overshoot, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where we break that accident chain right then and there. Because if we do enter the spin, chances are we've had that breakdown. We're not aware of what we're doing with the controls and it may very well be too late. Now, I, I've known uh, old time air show pilots who would finish a routine with a three turn spin to a landing oh, in really? a very <laughs> lightly loaded airplane, right? I, I don't have that kind of uh, uh, intestinal fortitude for something like that. But, but again, uh, w the spin training is really about the awareness prevent and prevention part of it as much as it is about the recovery part of it.
you know, again, once again, Rich, you do a great job of segueing me. You, you actually, the next three things you had actually just talked about, the next three things I had on my list. Um, Got to make the host look good. <laughs> that was it. Was pretty impressive. You know, folks, Rich didn't see my list in advance. <laughs> it's just that good. Um, yeah, you know, going back to the so going back to the pattern altitude. You know, um, you know, in aviation or anything really in life, right? You, you keep doing it until the good Lord says you can't do it anymore. Um, and so it's important. When you're an airplane, even if it's in an emergency situation, you keep flying the airplane. You don't stop flying the airplane until the good Lord says you can't stop flying. And, um, and so the one thing I, I was kind of thinking about is, you know, you were saying, you know, that, um, that first turn in the pullout, you know, you're, you're looking at about 600 or so feet. And so what that tells me is that even if you were somebody who got into a spin, you know, obviously nobody try this, right? Don't be one of those aerobatic pilots that tries to do right. this on purpose. Do this at home. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't do this at home. Um, you know, but if 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 you just ha- if you had the proper training, one, you probably wouldn't get in the situation. But if something really crazy happens and all the the, the dimes and dices roll against you, um, and you get into this thing, you may soil your pants with how close you're going to get to that ground. Um, but you may you may get out of it with you know with with another with 50 100 feet 200 feet underneath you um you know or just skimming or you know um we were talking about you know that loss of altitude part of that is the pullout you know so you may you may hit the ground on the pullout um which probably you know may still not be very good for you um but it's probably going to be a lot better for you than if you hit it nose down into the ground um so so i think if if you, if folks get that training and like I said, you know, hopefully they don't get, because of the training, they don't get themselves into it. I really feel like, you know, they can break it faster, um, you know, and, and even at, tr- even at typical pattern altitudes, you've got a pretty good fighting chance. Um, you may scare yourself. You may never want to fly an airplane again after it. Um, but you, you know, you may land that airplane and, uh, you know, go get a cold one, you know, and, um, and, and, and just recount your story for the rest of your life to everybody. So, um, yeah. The, the interesting thing is, is that um, if you look at whether we're talking about stalls, whether we're talking about spins, whether we're talking about, say, an engine failure on climb out, whether they're talking about being low and slow on final, there is a, a common prevention reaction to all of those, and that is push. But our natural instinct when we get busy, distracted, stressed is we pull more and pulling if we pull enough, usually leads to something bad, right? Stall, possibly spin if there's yaw. And so one of the hardest things to teach and to sort of intellectualize is when in doubt, push. And even if you're close to the ground, case we do uh, as an example is a simulated climb out with an engine failure, you gotta push the nose down. And I'll, I'll often ask the trainee, I'll say, well, okay, so your engine quits 300 feet above the ground, you gotta push the nose down because you're climbing out at VX, you had a high deck angle. How much of your 300 feet can you afford to lose? And the student you know, trainee will usually think about it because a lot of times we were taught at, at altitude, minimize altitude loss. So 300 mm-hmm. feet, they'll say uh, only one foot. I say, no, no, you can afford to lose 299 feet of that 300 <laughs> right. to arrive in the last foot with energy and options to flare. Right. Because if we paraphrase, you know, um, the late great Bob Hoover, you got to fly the airplane as far into the crash as possible. And you got to be, if you're going to hit the ground, low, slow landing attitude, right? Mm-hmm. That means wheels down. So don't be afraid to push. And, and the strangest concept is in a lot of these cases, you have to push at the ground so that later on you can miss the ground. Totally foreign right. concept. 
Yeah. That, yeah. Again, you get out of the airplane and you, you're scared, scared to death of it, but you know, you walk out. So, um, yeah, keep flying it. So you mentioned a couple other things that kind of segued. So one, you talked about, you know, um, um, you know, looking outside now the, the, um, the AOAs, right? So the attitude indicators, um, so do you think that those are helpful? Um, are they becoming more popular? They're becoming cheaper to install. I'm seeing them pop up in, in um, even, I think Garmin even now um, has, they're working on putting it into the G1000s um, and some of their other instruments. Do you, do you find that, that the AOAs help? Sure. Um, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about the current generation of angle attack devices we can install on airplanes. Uh, however, back in the 70s and so 80s, when FAA and, and even NASA were doing studies on incorporating that current technology, angle of attack instrumentation into airplanes, they found it was beneficial in some operations, no real benefit in the other. And, and the general consensus was that uh, there was no net benefit of benefit to, to having it. So I'm waiting for actual studies mm -hmm. on this current generation. But I will say at the same time that a lot of times pilots are looking for the latest gadget to put in the airplane. So they'll spend money on the gadgets. Uh, and it's, a, it's like, you know, what we do with our cars, right? We like to fix up our cars and the latest, greatest. When oftentimes, if we invest that money by putting into the gas tank and working right. on our skills, we can get perhaps as, as good a result as the technology. The other aspect too is people will think if they put the technology in, they don't have to do the other things where, no, the technology is one more tool for your toolbox. You still need all the other tools, right? And especially when we're flying in a visual environment, which is what most of us do in general aviation, it's day VMC, we're looking outside. And so any anytime we have to divert inside, now some of these devices, of course, they're up on the glare shield, so mm -hmm. maybe we see it out of the corner of our eyes. Or you know, once we get into heads-up display, that might be a little bit more effective. But also keep in mind that AOA instrumentation does have limitations. I, I flew with a pilot in his uh, uh, little home-built airplane that had, it had glass panel, it had a, an a AOA system in it. We did 10 stalls in a row, just vanilla stalls, 10 of them in a row. And it activated on nine out of 10. So it had a 10% failure rate, at least in that little test period, right? Uh, the next thing we did, we, we put the airplane into a slip and we stalled it in a slip. And there was no doubt the airplane was in a stall. It was bucking up and down and, and wobbling all over the place, but the AOA instrumentation never got out of the yellow. So, so everything has limitations and we need to understand it. There is no universal fix-all tool. And uh, so I, I think if we go in with that mindset, we're much better off. Yeah. So spend the money on the training. I know, I know it's a different thing, but um, I know I, I, I play guitar a little bit really horribly. And, um, and, you know, so everybody in the, in everybody plays music, right? You always think, well, if I just got that better guitar, that better amp, I'm going to sound like Eddie Van Halen, right? You know, Eddie Van Halen, you know, rest his soul, you know, he could pick up a $200 Walmart guitar and sound unbelievable, you know, and you pick right. up a $3,000 guitar and you still sound like yourself with just with a $3,000 guitar. Um, yep. So yeah, you're better off doing the training. Um, the, you know, going into how we get into stalls, right? The, 
the oh the instruments now um I, I actually noticed this because like i said you know i'm working with my cfi right now and we were doing some maneuvers the other day and we went into an airplane i've only been into twice and it had some you know all this new glass instrument stuff that i'm not used to right so in cap we have g1000s and you know pretty comfortable with the g1000 and for those that don't know g1000 is like a really big two ipads and you know but um some of the other airplanes those g1000s are super expensive so um, so some of the other airplanes that don't have that much money, uh, pilots don't have that much money to put into them. So they had smaller versions of them. Um, you know, we call it G5 or something along those, those lines. So they're packing a lot of information in a small display, which is really making people look really tightly at those instruments, um, as opposed to more of a broad glance. Like I feel like we used to do with the six packs. Um, sure. so do you feel that, um, when it comes specifically to getting into trouble with spins, do you feel that the um, the uh, the glass cockpits are helping or hurting? I don't have any specific data that that separates steam gauges versus the glass panels, but but we do know that anytime pilots become distracted when they're under high workloads, traffic patterns a good example. High workloads, uh, maybe they get lost several menus deep in in some panel that they're working on. Um, we might lose track of what we're doing with with our hands and feet on the controls and put ourselves in a situation where we're in some kind of a corner of the operating envelope that has a little margin for error. So, so anything that increases distraction levels can be a, a, is a potential precursor to uh, inadvertent loss of control of the airplane, whether it's a stall spin or some other loss of control. So you just want to keep that in mind, right? I mean, there's that, there's that classic uh, airline accident where uh, the airliner crashed because everybody in the cockpit was staring at a burned out light bulb. <laughs> right, right. Nobody was flying the airplane, right? So so if we're having difficulty with some particular instrumentation in the airplane, take a break from that for a second. Get back outside, get your head back into the aviate part, right? And then we'll worry about pushing buttons for navigation and communication and all of that. So it always always comes back to fly the airplane first, right? And 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 try not to get distracted with something that if it, if it's not working, move on to something else and then come back to it. Or delegate if you can do that. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's so much more important today than maybe it has been in the past. For the only reason that you know, in the past, you know, you had your steam gauges. You may have different manufacturers, but they all pretty much did the same thing. Um, they all kind of looked the same for the most part. Um, you know, but they all operated roughly the same. You you could go into you know a King Air and you could go into a Cessna 150. You know, and the the six pack is gonna act like a six pack. Um, but nowadays, you know, you've got Garmin, Avidine, and you, you've got just a myriad of different vendors that are making, even in, even in one line like Garmin, right? I mean, you've got numerous, uh, I was actually just watching, um, a presentation at Sun and Fun and one, I won't say who, but one of the, um, one of the vendors that makes glass panels, um, was super proud of the fact like they had a hundred and 105 different options that they could put on their glass panels. Um, you know, and for them that was like, oh, look at the different options. And I'm looking at that going, oh my gosh, if somebody doesn't, who, somebody who, you know, jumps into lots of different airplanes, 
I, I have to know 105 different ways of looking right. and where these menus are. And, um, and, and I'm only so smart. My CFI will tell you, Rich, I'm only so smart. <laughs> so, um, so, and, um, I understand. <laughs> and once that task saturation hits a certain point, man, I'm the dumbest person in that airplane. <laughs> so, um, you know, and so trying to figure out the, where, where the buttons are. And, you know, <laughs> there was one time I was looking for buttons. There wasn't any buttons on the thing. <laughs> I'm like, where's the buttons? It's a touchscreen. I don't know. I'm looking for a button. Um, so anyways, um, it just goes to show like nowadays, if you're a pilot, you've got to understand, you know, part of spin training, honestly, I think is learning your instruments in your airplane. So you don't get into a spin by being distracted, looking at the instruments. Sure. And, and being able to, to interpret those new instruments, the, the new ways that information is being presented to you mm-hmm. and what information is important, what information isn't important. And you're right. I mean, if in in the the steam gauge sense, whether you were qualified in the particular airplane or not, at least one thing you understood was how the instruments were going. You know what information they were giving you. And now it's almost as if you need type ratings for the different <laughs> types of hardware, right? And and software that's out there, and uh, it just further complicates. And and you know, it, there's a good good news and a bad news, right? So the good news is, yeah, you have a lot more information available to you if you know how to access. But the the bad news is that that either adds training time or it takes training time away from other things, from other skills that we we should need to develop. And one thing we know for sure, if the screen goes black, the airplane will still fly. That's right. That's right. right. And so, and and even if you have automation and everything else, the first thing you do in a stall or spin departure or an overbanked attitude is you turn the automation off and you go to you go hands-on stick and rudder skills so your life's going to depend on your stick and rudder skills in the end automation or no right yep 100 percent. now um let's see here so that was most of the spin discussion and so i told folks you know about two-thirds of the way through we were going to start talking about rich uh so i so i want to talk about rich um but before we switch over because i do think that you know i, I think that you have so much value you know to the community for spin training and i mean we really didn't talk about emergency management training so maybe we'll do that in a little bit here but um is there anything else you would definitely want folks to know that we didn't t- touch on for spin training yeah, uh, as I said earlier, when in doubt, force yourself to push. That's your reset, right? Uh, especially if you have the airplane trimmed to do something, let it go. If you're holding pressure on the controls uh, off your trim setting, let it go and figure out why am I doing that? Now, uh, retrim it if that's what you're intending. Otherwise, let it go. You've you've got it set for something. And so uh, typically what will happen when we get stressed and distracted, I've noticed that the first thing that that will disconnect on pilots are their feet. Mm-hmm. The second thing that will disconnect is their awareness of pull. And so in and around the traffic pattern, make good use of the trim. In and around the traffic pattern, if it's been 20 seconds, 30 seconds since you are aware that you moved your feet last, wiggle your feet and find out what they're doing down there. Mm-hmm. That's that, a really that, good point. That helps you with your yaw awareness, also helps you, you know, using effect, using the trim effectively in the pattern helps you with your stall awareness. Yeah, I've been um, this. You mentioned this in your book is one of the, the um, you know, different airplanes have different ways of doing stall recovery. And your book does a really nice job of breaking down, you know, some of the more popular airplanes. And um, one thing I saw online and I, I, I read it in your book as well was um, and this actually goes back to that gentleman that was, you know, could have sat there and drank coffee in the middle of a three turn <laughs> spin that, you know, I, I would have been throwing up over. But um, he he um, um, 
he actually when the, he had the spin started and he could see the student you know really you know fighting with it and he told the student put your hand on the dashboard and so he told him just take your hands off and just put both hands on the dash and to mm-hmm. us as pilots we want to be in control that's crazy and he's like all right now kick the opposite rudder and just kick it as hard just push it down and the thing stopped and he's like he's like that's it you know um and that that's one of the maneuvers you can do depending on the airplane it sounds like but um yeah sure. just just let go and as long as you've got it trimmed you know and you've got good rudder and let it go sure and you know the bottom line unlike a helicopter airplanes are designed to fly so <laughs> that's right. leave them alone <laughs> right. and then we put it it's usually a software problem in the seat it's not a hardware problem <laughs> <laughs> i always joke with all of our, hel- our army helicopter pilots i always always joke i say you know helicopters don't actually fly they're just so ugly that the earth repels them so <laughs> um all right so um uh, that's it for the spin training so now i wanted to talk to you a little bit about yourself so um we do have a lot of our folks that are listening that are either cfis or they're going to be cfis um and you know you you won in 2000 2006, the, the, the national CFI of the year. And so first of all, how do you go about doing that? Like, is there a competition? Like, how do you get to be the national of the year for a CFI? Uh, I don't know that I would call it necessarily a competition, uh, but for more than 50 years now, uh, the FAA working in partnership with industry has had an annual awards program for a flight instructor, uh, done it at FISDO levels, regional levels, and then they they choose a national level. Uh, For flight instructors, for uh, FAA safety team representatives, for um, uh, aviation maintenance technicians, and avionics as well. So so just trying to recognize people who are really trying to excel in their profession. And so typically, typically toward the end of the year, September timeframe, October timeframe, they'll accept application packages and and typically somebody will put one in for you or they'll say I will sponsor you but I need information um, and so I guess at that point yeah maybe it does become a competition because there are judges and I, I've been a national judge before mm-hmm. uh, on on these awards and so you just sort of keep moving up the chain and then if, if you're the national winner you get recognition during air venture and you know a, a tremendous honor and uh, several years later, uh, my local FAA safety team program manager said, hey, I want to put you up for the uh, fast team rep of the year. And I said, okay, that, that means I've got work to do. Right? <laughs> he said, yeah, send me stuff. Uh, and and I did I did get it. One, one oh, of, very good. Congratulations. Uh, maybe four or five uh, pilots who have received that kind of award in multiple categories. And again, tremendous honor. Um, and, and it just means that I have to keep pushing and get better each mm-hmm. time, right? I can't just sit on those laurels, I have to keep learning. So it's a, it's a continual process. And, uh, anybody who, if you have a good instructor out there, uh, look up the, the, uh, general aviation awards program is what mm-hmm. it's called. Look it up on the internet and, you know, recognize people who are doing good work. You know, I, you know, talking about people that do good work. Um, I don't think that the FAA safety team, the fast team, I don't think they get the recognition that those folks deserve. And, you know, obviously I didn't know that, um, that you had one, you know, uh, fast member of the year. Um, and first of all, that's awesome too. Um, so, but I, just, just for your entire group though, with the fast team, um, they just do such incredible work. Um, 
you know, and you see everybody from people from the FAA, general aviation pilots, you just, you see everybody in that group. Um, and I mean, they're dedicated to one mission, right? And, and, and that's to make sure. people fly, fly safe. And, um, you know, flying is very safe to begin with, but everything we can do, we can get better at. Um, and so, you know, on, on behalf of us at Civil Air Patrol, um, you know, thank you for your work with the FAST team. Um, and I may talk to and, you because and the reps are all volunteers. It's all, it's all volunteer work. It's all volunteer and I can pay. And I will say that I'm, I'm also super excited that, um, Oshkosh is going to happen this year. Um, so for those of you that are listening, that don't know Oshkosh has confirmed, uh, or I'm sorry, EAA has confirmed their air venture is on. Um, they're going to have a little bit, you know, a little bit more limited capacity than normal. It looks like they're going to space out booths, uh, between buildings a little bit more to uh you know to help social distancing things along those natures but um man i'll take anything they can give us so right. um so super happy about that um so so you know before we talk about rich which i do want to get into before we finish up but um emergency training so an emergency maneuver training now we talked about um stalls and spins what else would you consider an emergency maneuver training sure so it's set up as three different modules, and the first two really address all of the what they currently call upset prevention and recovery training. So module one is is all about stall spin awareness, prevention, recovery. Uh, module two uh, covers two different topics, and, and basically it's everything other than stall spin. So uh, rolling upsets, uh, simulated wake turbulence encounters, how to roll an airplane from an overbanked attitude. And then uh, we go through uh, some simulated uh, control loss scenarios. You know, what do we do if the ailerons get stuck, the rudder gets stuck, uh, a couple of different scenarios involving the elevator. And in the end, we will typically have the trainee fly all the way back from the practice area, fly a traffic pattern and land the airplane without ever touching uh, the elevator control. In fact, oh, wow. we don't have them touch uh, the, the stick or the yoke at all because we're trying to simulate a floating elevator, but how do you do that and still move ailerons without influencing? So we just use power and basically rudder and trim <laughs> and wow. fly and show people that, you know, you have alternate means of controlling an airplane. Pretty rare that any of those things happen, but it just sort of gives people opportunities to think of other ways they might handle emergencies. And of course, the third module, once you've done all of the unusual attitude stuff and the what ifs, and we do the aerobatics. We do the intentional loops and hammerheads, and and we try to do them well. So uh, that, that's sort of the progression through the program. Now, as much as I've said I'm, I'm nervous about spins, I don't know why that I wouldn't be nervous about aerobatics. I think aerobatics would be beyond cool to do. The problem that I have, and maybe you have a recommendation um, with your work with the IAC, is um, I'm six foot seven. So I don't think I'm going to fit in an extra 300. <laughs> so um, what's a, what's a, if you're somebody who's a tall guy, what, what's a good aerobatic airplane? Yeah. That, and that's really tough, especially with aerobatic airplanes, because for obvious reasons, all of those envelopes and, and the airplanes right, themselves are small or they're, they're based on older designs when average, the average humans weren't as, as big as they are now. Right. Uh, what I have done in some cases, depending where your six foot seven is, right. How it's distributed with your body. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have been able to put people in the backseat of a decathlon, which okay. has a little bit more leg room and you know, it's not ideal, but we, we can get them in there and at least get them some exposure. So, okay. uh, it, it's hard, you know, we take out seat cushions, we, we do everything we can you know, to, to, to get the room in the airplane. Um, 
I think the tallest person I've ever been able to shoehorn in might have been close to six eight. Okay. So you're, you know, sort of right at the edge there, but it depends. You know, is it all legs? Is it all torso? Yeah, I think How I'm mostly torso. Yeah, I think uh, I'm mostly upper body. They, um, um, you know, obviously I still have long legs, but I, I, I think it's mostly upper body. You know, I talked to Patty Wagstaff um, one time at EAA. This is, oh, gosh, got to be 10, 15 years ago. Um, you know, and I corralled her one time <laughs> and uh, started talking to her. And um, she's like, yeah, you're not going to fit in the 300. <laughs> so um, I, I, figured, I figured my shot, you know, it's obviously super limited in what it could do. But uh, I figured a T6 Texan is probably my size. Um, yeah, something like that. A T34, perhaps. A T34, uh, yeah. If you've got the money, yeah. Possible. See if you can fit into a Zlin, a 242. Uh, okay. Possible. Uh, yeah. You know, you might be able to get the seat far enough back. Yeah, shoehorn, shoehorn yourself in. So, <laughs> um, okay, very cool. So now um, we've got a few minutes left. So I wanted to talk more about you. So how did you get your start in aviation? Did you come from an aviation family or? No aviation family. Uh, I'm going to be dating myself, but uh, Star Trek was big. <laughs> I'm trying to think, <laughs> how do you do that? Every like night. The, uh... And then uh, a little event happened uh, in 1969 where some folks went for a walk on the moon mm -hmm. and, and it just, you know, had that encouragement and excitement and all of that. I, uh, was into model rocketry as a freshman in high school for a while. And I always thought that I wanted to fly at some point, but you know, since you brought up the nerd thing, I tell people <laughs> I'm a recovering mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. I went to engineer. I went to engineering school, probably not too far from from where you might have gone in upstate New York. Is, is that where to where you went? Um, I, I went to Rochester Institute of Technology. Yeah, so I went to RPI. Yep. Oh, okay, very yeah, good. So, okay. um, and so you know, do all of that. I came out as a mechanical engineer doing um, low tech aerodynamics design, designing, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, uh, systems for office building skyscrapers mm -hmm. in New York. And my punishment for not following my bliss was that our office was three floors underground. I never saw the light of day. Oh no. After a couple of years of doing that, I said, I got to go fly. So mm -hmm. I quit my job and I flew every day till I got my private. And then everything I did after that was, was centered around going to fly. I took aerobatic training. I entered an aerobatic contest, happened to be in the right place at the right time where a friend of mine bought the flight school and said, Hey, I'm thinking of having an aerobatic department. Do you want to, do you want to do something with that? And I said, sure. Next thing I know, 1987, I'm, I'm working full time, uh, with the emergency maneuver training program, learning as I go. And now it's 30 some odd years later. <laughs> so now with all that experience, and first of all, I think it's interesting is, you know, whether, whether, you know, I'm sure you realize it, but you know, for those that are listening, you know, both careers focused around fluid dynamics. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, thinking I, I'm about not a gearhead, it was all fluid flow, heat transfer, that kind of stuff. Yes. So those, so those of us that are engineering, it had to, had to live through fluid dynamics. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that probably helped your, uh, helped your aviation career too, because the yeah. air is a fluid. Um, once you stop thinking of it as an invisible gas, you start thinking of it as a fluid, uh, it starts helping you out. Um, so, you know, because of with all that experience you've got, if you've got folks that are, are either CFIs today, maybe there's somebody that's a, a relatively new CFI or going to be a CFI, um, you know, what recommendations would you have for them? Sure. And of course the most popular and visible track career track for a CFI is to go to the airlines or fly corporate. Um, but 
you know, you can, there are a lot of other things you can do in aviation. You, you, you can find a lot of flight instructors who have found a particular niche. And as long as you do a good job in that niche, uh, I'll say when I was in, I was in Santa Paula, California for 25 years and then up here in Idaho, uh, it didn't matter where I was. If I was close to a, a major airport like LAX or here in Boise, I would say 75 to 90% of the pilots I flew with flew in from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I didn't depend on the local pilot population necessarily. Um, so find a niche and there are a lot of different niches. You've got pilots who do, you know, three or four day instrument only, uh, jaunts up and down, say the East coast or the West coast, you know, Im fully immersive like that float plane training, aerobatic training, tailwheel training, um, spin and upset training, emergency maneuver training, like I do, uh, other career pathways for flight instructors would be, um, government flying positions. So for example, um, uh, fish and wildlife park service, uh, border patrol law mm. enforcement, where they also need flight instructors. So they have internal flight instructors and mentor pilots, uh, even though they might be flying their missions, which are typically low, slow, uh, circling other things on the ground. Uh, there was one one flight instructor I knew, mentor pilot uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service. He was based out of Anchorage, and his job, his job aside from mentoring other uh, Fish and Wildlife pilots, was to fly a uh, specially built uh, turbine-powered Beaver Amphib uh, from Anchorage and follow the migrating birds down to Baja and then turn around and go back. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there are a lot of these other different uh, niches that I, that I think uh, if you look around, you can, you can probably fill and then be fulfilled with it. Yeah, it's nice to see from the airline perspective, especially, you know, a lot of those folks are getting their jobs back now. The furloughs are starting to end and they're getting callbacks. So that's nice. You know, one of the fun ones I've always heard of, and you might have mentioned it, I might just missed it, but uh, is skydiving. Um, sure. The skydiving schools, you know, the pilots for the skydiving schools, because that is a lot of, you know, very, very hands-on, you know, you're not taking off and then 400 feet into the ground, putting an autopilot on and then letting it fly the airplane for two hours or three hours. And, um, I mean, you're hand flying and you've got different weight moving around and you're, you know, going real high altitudes. Sure. And so that, that seems like a fun one to do if you can get your hands on it. Um, crop dusting, we know yep. a similar one would be crop dusting. Yep. That's real big out here. Uh, this is, this is the land of potatoes. I'm still mad at a crop duster. I got cut off one time on a crop, crop duster on a final. He cut, cut it right in front of me, man. I was like 300 feet off the ground. He's like, I'm lower. I have the right of way. I was like, oh, you wait till I get on the ground. I'm six foot eight. So. They're always lower. So. <laughs> They're always lower. So I'm like, um, he's like, I'm low. I got right away. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I said, I said a few things I can't mention on here because we might have civil air patrol kids watching it. Um, so, um, so that's pretty cool. So, um, so what's next for you? So, you know, you've done such incredible stuff. You know, I, I think you said you, you've been working on some other projects. I, I went to your website. Um, you've got two books. Actually, that was a question I want to make sure I ask you. Um, so before I even ask you the other question. So on your website, you have your programs, right? And you have DVDs. So um, a lot of folks, they don't have DVD players anymore. Um, do you have another way for folks to get that media yet? Or are you still, something you're still working on or thinking about or? Thinking about it, and, and I've always been several years behind, right? It, it took me a long time to transition from the VHS versions mm -hmm. to the DVD, and so now I'm a few years behind on that. Uh, but one of the projects I've been I've been working on with Community Aviation, 
which is based in Virginia, probably not too far from you, is uh, their learn to fly framework where uh, every to, uh, Tuesday and Thursday for the last three months, I've been doing uh, Zoom webinars. Oh, cool. And so our, our next uh, our, our next generation of that is to do some filming uh, next week out here uh, and make them on-demand programs. So, so ultimately, we're going to convert all of that to subscription-based or on-demand. Uh, and, and so all of that will be available uh, digitally online. The other project I'm working on is my uh, Learn to Turn initiative, right? So so most of the loss of control, these uh, stall spins ha are happening while we're doing other things like maneuvering. And so uh, happy to say that I've, I've gotten some sponsorship and I'm going to be uh, generating a, a free digital booklet with some other content, video content. And, you know, we'll go as far as we can with the overall package of, of information and make that freely available to anyone and everyone uh, out there. Uh, we've got a number of early adopters from aviation, uh, university aviation uh, programs to flight schools and, and other groups that are going to promote it. And so, so that's a project that I'm, I'm working on. I also do some uh, um, expert witness work. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been doing some work with the Department of Justice on some accident cases, and um, that that tends to be pretty. Inter it's interesting work. It's it's unfortunate work, but it is interesting right. work. So so a lot of these different content generation uh, projects, and and like I say, you know, I've, I've had some uh, chief pilots at flight schools ask me to come and train them up so that they can train. So you know, those sorts of things are. Uh, I, I like to do those sorts of things as well. Cool. Now I know that um, um, I'm going to probably reach out to you on the side or maybe even we'll talk after we're done here. But, um, you know, going back to what you said about, um, you know, individual, you know, getting extra training. I know this summer, um, I'm hoping, knock on wood, um, I'm hoping I can get out. And um, I know you know her, uh, Amy Hoover. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, Amy and I are good friends. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, did review her book before it came out on the mm -hmm. mountain backcountry and canyon flying with uh, with Dick Williams uh, as well. She's yep. had me out to Central Washington University a couple of times as mm -hmm. a uh, guest lecturer, and actually took a decathlon out there one time and flew with some of their students, and I've uh, flown with her in, in her airplane. So yeah, we we bump into each other fairly often. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I I've talked to her. I want to do um, a mountain flying class with her um, this summer. Um, I, I just can't imagine too many people better to do that with. Yeah. So. If, if you're out here, let me know, please. All right. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you what I am not, I am all for, I can't sometimes bring an airplane out because the rental, uh, I don't own my own airplane yet. <laughs> so, um, we're working on that problem, but, uh, probably be a little bit longer, but I'm all for, you know, flying out to someplace, you know, even commercial and taking a nice long weekend and, you know, spending three, four days, you know, if, um, you know, getting some real consolidated, you know, play, uh, training, I think that'd be great. So, sure. uh, um, well, you know, yeah. maybe one aspect would be to, uh, see if we can do something through the local CAP wing when you're out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, usually I try to mooch off the local CAP wings anyways, where I, when I fly out some places <laughs> see if I can get some uh, free food from them. So oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll fly for food, right? We'll fly for food. I always will fly for food right now. I'm trying to talk them into letting me fly one of the 182s from uh, Greenville, South Carolina to Oshkosh this year. So <laughs> oh, nice. it's like a seven well, hour flight each way. Um, but um, so, okay, well, that's great. Well, Hey, listen, you know, we are looking forward to seeing more from you. Um, and, you know, I didn't know about the, the fast, you know, team member, what's the actual a formal title, fast team member of the year, national what? Yeah, it's the um, um, FAA safety team representative of the year. Okay. 
Of course, you were going off of the uh, Stall Spin book, which was 2007. So this was 2014. Right, right. Yeah. So some of these things have been new. Well, the nice thing about uh, even some of the older books, I've always found whether it's, you know, something as old as Stick and Rudder, right? You know, 50 year old oh. book, you know, the physics of flying hasn't changed. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, so maybe some of the glass panel stuff has changed, um, you know, and, and how you do that. But you know what? A thunderstorm is still a thunderstorm. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, a wing is still a wing and, you know, fl you know, lift is still lift. So, um, right. yep. yeah, you know, and so we've known spin recover the best way to, to recover from recoverable spins for more than 80 years. And yep. for some reason, uh, some, some pilots seem compelled to try to reinvent the wheel. We've known a lot of this stuff for a long time. Well, hopefully I can get out. I'd like to, I always, everybody I meet virtually, I always, you know, with COVID, right, we've gotten used to meeting people virtually. Um, but I do hope they get to meet you in, in real life here, you know, at some point. Do you still get out to the air shows at all? or? I do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes get out to the East Coast with uh, community aviation out in Virginia. So, okay. you know, anywhere I'm going to be within a couple hundred mile radius, I'll let you know. Yeah, give me a holler. You know, go out sure. for that $100 hamburger. I would love it. So. All right. All right. Sounds well, fun. Well, Rich, I'll be right back with you. I'm going to go say goodbye to the folks and uh, I'll be right back. All right. Thank you, Bob. All right. And that was our time with Rich Stoll. And uh, really thankful to Rich. You know, as you could tell, you know, listen, you don't get national, uh, you know, uh, fast team member of the year or national CFI of the year unless two things. One, you're really good. But two, you got to be passionate um, about the industry. And and frankly, you don't get to be CFI of the year if you're not passionate about the people um, that you're around. And I, I could tell real easy when talking to uh, Rich that, you know, he, he wants to see people flying safely and, and understand what's going on. Um, and you know, again, a lot of us, we talk about being pilots and it's just us in the airplane, but a lot of us have, you know, our, our significant others, our kids, our family, our friends. Um, and so if you can do this kind of training and really get an understanding of, uh, how to not get yourself into a spin in the first place, that's obviously the most important aspect of this training. But if you get yourself into a spin, I, I kind of mentioned before, you know, if you're, you've got a, you've got a pretty good shot of, um, you know, maybe getting your ego bruised, um, but walking out of the airplane. So, um, so with that, if you are interested in civil air patrol, um, you know, you can go visit us at go civil And then because we're doing this whole thing on the, the, the YouTubes and the interwebs, as, as they would say, um, if you would like to, you can, uh, please subscribe. Um, I got to do the whole YouTuber thing, like, and subscribe and comment. Um, if you have somebody you would like to hear from, um, if you've got a great recommendation, like rich, um, you know, Rich was a recommendation to me. I had bought his book and uh, reached out to Rich. And I'm always amazed when I email somebody, they actually email me back. So um, Rich, Rich, he was nice enough to email me back. And um, and that's how it works. So if you have somebody you would like to uh, hear from, go ahead and put that person's name down in the comments section, and I'll do my best to get them on for you. And with that, we want to thank everybody. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye.